in the, the heart of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that compares the importance of love uh, to, to really, and, and, and it overwhelms any other thing of any sort of power. So in the spirit of, of having the tongues of angels, but not having love in, ending with nothing, and in the spirit of having the power to move mountains, but without love, really not having any power to speak of at all, in that same spirit, I kind of want to put this week's topic in perspective. If individuals and families join Willow Bend Church until we run out of room and chairs but don't have love, if we gather each and every Sunday despite sickness or sport but have not love, if we celebrate communion until Walmart down the road runs out of grape juice or wine but have not love, if we baptize people until the Robertson's pool heater breaks again but we don't love, if we give financially until we ourselves are in need of financial benevolence but don't love, and if you respond to Dave's sermon last week and we're having so much sign-up that our ministry leaders are creating spots for you to serve but we don't love, then we aren't his church. If we don't have the love of Christ in our heart for one another, all the other very critical and important Operating parts of the church are for naught. So the goal this morning is to learn, to look at Scripture together, and to leave those doors wherever you exit with a greater commitment to love each other, for you to love me, for me to love you, in a manner worthy of Christ's love for us. Now that's a high task, um, and in the spirit of 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, I believe it was, where Paul told the Thessalonian church that I don't need to write to you about God's love because God teaches you his love. But we all know, nevertheless, Paul wrote. Now, I don't need to, to speak to you this morning to, to create any love for one another. I, I know my role here this morning, and I know that I cannot do that. And just like Paul, nevertheless, I'm, I'm still going to talk. And I'm still going to encourage and provoke us to greater love for one another. That's our goal today. Uh, so the question quickly becomes, what is this love and what does it look like? How do I know that I have it? That'd be a really important thing to know this morning before we leave. Um, and, and so I think it's fair to start kind of at the beginning in the world that we live and just say, frankly, the world that we live in, that we're constantly impressed by, uh, does not know what this love is. Uh, they don't know what it looks like, and, and they certainly don't know where to find it. Um, if you go no further than a Google search or uh, the popular uh, box office hits, uh, it doesn't take long to know that our world, when you think of love or type in love, is quickly enamored, and I would even say obsessed with, a very romantic, lust-filled version of love. But on the other hand, they, they very quickly will, will admit that they don't really think it's just that, though we're obsessed with that in our, our culture. I think they're smart enough to know that it's more than just romance. Uh, yesterday was Valentine's Day, okay, and even the world, you don't have to be a believer and have true access to the source of love to realize that on Valentine's Day, you kind of have to do a lot of the, the dirtier kinds of loving, getting your hands dirty, real world kinds of love in order to really celebrate a day of love, right? Even the world knows that it's more than just romance. 
So, for example, men, uh, you can't bypass the folding of laundry and then slap on a tie and then celebrate your love. You can't not clean a bottle or a diaper or uh, do the, the occasional back rub, which is my cross to bear, uh, and then not do those things. And these are all the, the real-life sacrificial actions of love that never grace the cover of a throw pillow. You're never going to go to Hobby Lobby and find some of these commands, the God kind of agape love commands, on a pillow or framed in a picture frame. It's just not beautiful in that sense, but it's, it's beautiful in another And so while the world has no clue really what it is, though they sense something is missing, and worst of all, they have no clue where to find it. Um, In their unfortunately catchy hit single, uh, Where is the Love? Uh, The the band, the Black Eyed Peas, recognize, this is going to go somewhere important, they recognize a lack of true, what I would call true love in the world. Even maybe a Christian love. They recognize the lack of it. Unfortunately, they they blame uh, murder and abuse, terrorism, ironically enough, media influence. They suggest that maybe it's found in faith, meditation. They even literally say, where's the love? I don't even know. Then they stumble upon the answer to their own question in one of the last lines of the song where it says, if you never know truth, then you never know love. I think they're right. I know they're right. As believers, especially as we open up uh, the Bible in John 13 here in just a second, we're going to realize that we only know true love because we know truth. We know Christ. And so uh, compared to everything else you and I are going to see on the topic of love, because we need to have a very stark contrast to a popular version and definition of love and, and the version defined by Scripture here in just a few minutes. Because in comparison to that kind of love, a a biblical Christian love is far more precious and satisfying than any self-centered brand of love that the world promotes, especially this time of year. God's selfless, agape kind of love, it works uh, to His glory, and and also, by the way, because He's gracious to our good. And so, the, the end... Um, of, of where is love is kind of the, it starts with the knowledge of truth. And we only know truth because we know a person named Christ. So the question this morning is then, how did, lo- how did Christ love? It becomes very, very simple. If we know love because we know truth, then let's look at the, at the truth. Let's look at Jesus. So if you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. This is a powerful uh, love scene. This is a powerful uh, demonstration of, of perfect Christ-driven, uh, uh, you know, God-centered love. And so before we just read top to bottom, just to keep things interesting a little bit, plus it has a point, we're going to read the very last two verses of kind of the scene. We're going to read the summary, and then I think there's three things Jesus does to love his disciples in that upper room that, that by the way, speak to how he's loved them up until that point that teach us maybe how to love one another better. If we're truly supposed to love others like Christ loved us, we're going to take a look at that powerful love scene. Uh, So let's read the last couple verses, John 13, 34, and 35. A new command I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. 
you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Uh, if you've been at Willow Bend any time, you heard something in there. Can anybody tell me what you heard? Not our vision statement, but our huge hint, mission statement. Uh, you heard uh, the idea of loving God and loving others. Uh, basically, they're inseparable. Uh, you almost can't take those two things apart, though they're worth thinking about separately. Uh, loving God, in this sense, and as we're going to see all throughout Scripture, means to love each other. This is a command that forces us this morning to look at then how Christ loved us. So if your obedience to God in terms of how you love each other, if my obedience to God in terms of how I love you, uh, th- that means that I've got to take a really hard look at how Jesus then loved me. And before we think that that's impossible, let's remember that the same spirit that, rose, that raised Christ from the dead lives in us, right? So again, once again, our hope is found in the fact that God finishes what he starts. So before we're about to get overwhelmed, that's not me. I don't love well enough. Well, let's remember that we are empowered to obey God by the very Spirit of God this morning. I think that's important before we get started. That said, let's get started. Uh, the first thing we see, and we're going to read verses 1 through 5 of this love scene in John 13. The first thing we see is that Jesus loved us with great humility. This is the attitude of our love. This is the heart disposition of our love, that Christ loved us, and certainly still does, with a great humility. Let's read 1 through 5. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, or to the max. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he was so close, and he knew it, and he did the acts of love till the end, and he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around his waist. We see a couple of things. One, it's, it's, it's of primary importance, and that is that God uh, got his knees on the ground and, and cleaned the dirty, uh, filthy feet of, of spiritually then unworthy men. And just so we're clear, you, you cannot stoop any lower than that. You cannot, you cannot get any more humble than that. And then again, going to, to possibly a frustrating, overwhelming truth is that's the same degree of humility that's expected of us. Jesus said, the way I love you, I want you to love others. So here we have to look at Christ and ask, how in the world can we be so humble? Philippians 2 helps us a little bit. And there's going to be a lot of scripture that we reference that you may just want to jot down and then keep listening and go back and look at later. But Philippians 2, 3 through 8 shows us how Christ laid his life down wholly, completely, both physically and spiritually, and then we'll look at how we're supposed to do the same. Philippians 2, 3-8, through 8, do, not, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. And don't let the fact that you've heard that a hundred times escape you. That's hard. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of the other. 
in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, here it is again, the expectation, as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, here's the spiritual laying down of his life, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. You could even say slave, being made in human likeness. And here's the physical laying down of his life. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death physically and spiritually on the cross. He dies spiritually by giving up his divinity. He dies physically on the cross as a man. So you need to go do the same thing. You need to go lay down your life physically and spiritually wholly for me. And I'm expected to do the same thing for you. Here's a couple uh, things that might get us thinking what in the world that could even look like. I think when we talk about laying down our lives physically, here's something we could think of. Your well-being is more important than my well-being. I think of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. We've talked about this back in Mark, I believe. Um, what I think of is, I, is, is, if you remember the story, you have an unclean, or so was the, the cultural uh, teaching or understanding, you have an unclean Samaritan, kind of a half-breed, not purely God's people anymore, and so they're despised. You have a, an unclean Samaritan stooping down and, and serving and loving a, a pure uh, man of God, a, a Jew. The Jew is in need, the Samaritan helps, and here's what the Samaritan does. He considers the well-being of this Jew, who despises him, by the way, above his own. In doing all the things we read about in Luke chapter 10, the good Samaritan lays down his safety on that particular part of the road between those two points, dangerous road. It was called the way of blood. Lots of robbers and thieves and people to harm you and steal things. Laid down his safety, potentially laid down his comfort, laid down his dignity, and laid down, we'd eventually see him paying money and offering to pay more if needed, laying down his material wealth. He considered the well-being of someone else above his own well-being. Do we, do we love like that? And then in John 15, Jesus removes all doubt. Well, how far am I supposed to uh, lay down my life physically for my brother, right? Like, give him some money? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, just kind of wash my back and help him, and then run away to, to my nice home with walls and, and lock the door, Whew, that was close. It, it just, just, to, just kind of a little bit, depending on the day, maybe a little bit more, and Jesus removes all doubt. How far do I lay my life down physically? He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down what? His life for his friend. Jesus would go on and call them his friend, and then very clearly say, hey, listen, the same way I love you, you love other people. You do it back. Okay, now what about spiritually? What does it look like to lay down our lives spiritually? I think it means something like this, to, to consider someone else's spiritual growth more important than my spiritual freedoms. What does that mean? Well, me as a mature believer, do I despise believers with a weaker conscience? Do I despise believers who are newer in the faith? 1 Corinthians 10, 23-28 says this, Paul has this in mind, laying down his life spiritually and teaching his churches to do the same. All things are lawful, mature believer, but not all things are helpful. Sure, in Christ you have a freedom where all things are lawful, but not all things are building up to those around you. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbors. It's starting to sound familiar. I'll answer my own question. Yes, it is familiar. It's a theme. 
And so that means that the context there is, if you know that this burger was previously sacrificed to an idol, but no one else knows that, enjoy the burger. God knows your heart in Christ. You have a clear conscience. This isn't about idol worship to you. But if you have a burger on a plate in a non-Christian or a weak believer who's still kind of wrapped up in the law a little bit, they haven't experienced the level of freedom in Christ that you have, and, and they say, ooh, I saw them sacrifice that to an idol a couple hours ago. You do not say, well, listen, man, you need to learn something that I already know. I've got freedom in Christ. Uh, you know, matter of fact, you should too. You need to enjoy this burger. And you, you jump, you leap over the Holy Spirit's work in their life. You've just considered your own spiritual freedom more important than their spiritual growth. I think that's what it looks like. And then again, Paul, removing all doubt, well, how far do I go laying down my life spiritually? Watch this. Romans 9, verse 3. Paul saying about his Jewish people, because he was a Jew. For I could not wish, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Do you love like that? Do I love like that? Do I lay down my life spiritually, physically, as Christ did? Steve Jorgen uh, writes this quote in a book that, that our staff is reading in terms of uh, recruiting and empowering volunteers. And we, we're on a chapter about serving and loving. And, and he writes this, We love, serve, and care for others because that is normal behavior for people who are filled with God's Spirit. We are Christians Christ was the ultimate servant. We can't help but serve because the spirit of the servant has filled our hearts. When we serve, we're just being who we naturally are. In terms of a humble heart of service, Jesus shows us that love is most easily identifiable when we serve in humility. We keep reading from verse 6 to 10 in this powerful love scene. And we see another way Christ loves us. He loves us according to the truth of Scripture. He loves us according to Scripture. Um, uh, verse 6, let's read this. He came, he was washing the disciples' feet. Now, kind of scene number two, there's been a quick intermission. We're back. He came to, to uh, Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet, because look at who you are and look at who I am. I should wash your feet, right? Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, if that's the case, do not wash, uh, do not, or not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. That's a quick little teaser to the next scene. When Christ told Simon Peter, you have no share with me, he was essentially saying this must be done. This would serve to symbolize the, the need for ongoing repentance in the Christian's life. This would symbolize the, the future baptism of believers in Christ. Uh, we see this also at Christ's baptism when John the Baptist refused to baptize Jesus. Remember that story? All for the same reason. You're the master and I'm the servant. Who am I to, to wash? Who, are you, who am I that you would wash my feet? And who am I to baptize you? You baptize me. And Jesus says the same kind of thing. We must do this to fulfill all 
righteousness. Every other step of love in Christ's life and ministry was outlined previously in Scripture. It was foretold, it was prophesied. His ministry to the poor that we see in Matthew 9 was mentioned in Zechariah 11. Uh, all throughout his ministry, things confirming Old Testament prophecy, uh, all the way to his death on the cross for the sins of the world, which we see all throughout Scripture and we see in Hebrews chapter 2, all prophesied in Daniel 9. And then we see kind of the climax of this idea that Christ is loving us in obedience to some sort of plan, either written out in Scripture or through prayer to the Father. In John 17, verse 4, I glorified you on earth, Christ said to God. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. All the way up to this love scene in the upper room, uh, we read back in Psalm 41, 9, that Jesus would be betrayed by a familiar friend. And then just a couple verses later, in our John 9 passage, verse 8, it says, But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread, Judas, has lifted his heel against me. When Christ acts in love, when he feeds the poor, when he teaches and does miracles, when he dies on the cross for us, he is obeying the plan of his heavenly Father. He takes his cues from Scripture. He takes his cues from the Bible. Now, it's a little bit different for us in terms of the reason, but we too take our cues from the Bible. We don't get to exercise methods of love that are not supported in Scripture, do we? In the same way, we take our cues from the Bible uh, for different reasons, though. Jesus didn't take his cues from the Bible in an instructional sense, meaning he didn't need to be taught how to love, did he? He didn't need to learn how to love and push your sin nature down and be selfless. He didn't need to learn that, but he needed to learn it in a directional sense. Okay, according to God's plan, I need to do this, and I get to fulfill the law in doing this and in doing that until the end where I die on the cross, and my job is done. He references the plan of the Father. Now, you and I need to also take our cues from Scripture in more of an instructional sense because we're still learning. Our desires are changing. 2 Corinthians 5, that new creation we're becoming, God is teaching us how to love. And just like Jesus was loving in obedience to the Father's plan, you and I also take our cues that all righteousness will be fulfilled. How come you're forgiving me? Well, to fulfill all righteousness. How come you're giving this to me? Well, because Scripture tells me to love like this. We, too, take our cues from God's Word. Many of the instructions in God's Word come very naturally. They're even supported by our culture, our entire world. Things like uh, humility in in Philippians 2, like we've read. Things like grace and forgiveness that apply to to all people, not just believers, but our, our world. This is how we treat everybody and a lot of these things come natural. First Timothy 4 even. Don't let the young kids be despised. This is the WB kids kind of life verse. And this is being instilled in our kids across in the other building right now. That even though you're young, you can be an example to the church in love. I think the world understands that. Even a, even a child can exercise powerful selfless love. We read in Hebrews 10, we're taking another cue that, that love should produce action. Chapter 10, verse 24, that, that we, we all understand that. The world would even applaud that idea. We take that cue from Scripture, that love is a verb of, in a sense. We understand that. We're, we're learning how to love, right? 
There's some instruction, however, that it doesn't come as naturally, and coincidentally, many of these are, are intended just for believers. And to sum them up into one phrase, we would say, the truth in love. Right? This is maybe a, a tough love, as, as we call it. And this is, a, this is a, a unique kind of love that's shared inside the walls of a church, so to speak, among believers only. That there's a, there's a level of honesty, even judgment, accountability, even, even consequence that, that we apply to one another in love that, that the world does not understand. And while they might appreciate it, they, they, they certainly don't apply it for the reasons with the purity of heart that you and I do. That said, do you know that judgment is love? Uh, uh, Matthew 7, Jesus says this, a good tree can't bear bad fruit. A bad tree can't bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, uh, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. By far the, the Bible's scariest verse but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Uh, picture the church, the people of God, kind of as an orchard, right? And then go back and kind of grab an illustration that God used in the Old Testament that you will taste and see that the Lord is good, right? In the same kind of way, whenever we're in relationship with one another, we're tasting of the, the fruit and the evidence of God's Spirit in our life, and, and that's our kindness and our gentleness and our self-control, right? And we're, we're doing life among each other, essentially eating of the, the fruit of one another's lives and, and enjoying it, because those are good things. They make relationships better. But what happens uh, when a believer, that, that it's a tree that loves Jesus and the roots go down to, to God's Word, and they're a believer, no doubt, every apple you've tasted, so to speak. The time you spent with them has been a great apple. It's crisp. It's not a red delicious, well-named, but those are gross. It's like a gala. It's like a, you know, it's a beautiful apple and it tastes delicious. And you're going, I, I love the fellowship, which is a Christian word for Christ-centered relationship that benefits both of us, right? I love the fellowship that I have with you. You're a believer. The fruit that's coming off your life that I get to benefit from is awesome. And then you grab an apple, so to speak, and that might be you see them doing certain things in life and you share a certain experience and they behave a certain way or say a certain thing and you're going, this one has a worm in it. And so as a believer in the orchard of trees of the church, difficult illustration, I hope you're hanging with me, but you're taking an apple and what happens when you're hanging out with me and you see a bad apple, so to speak? Your job as a believer is to say, hey, brother, tell me about this apple, I've tasted and I've, I've seen that, that God is good in your life, but, but this one not so much. Now, what I would encourage us all to do is check our heart. Why are we in the orchard? Are we in the orchard consuming the, the good of the Christian life of other people, or are we in the, in the orchard uh, being critical? Are we consuming or are we being critical? Let's, let's be honest. Because it's, it's Christian judgment if we're, being, if we're consuming but it's just criticism and being judgmental if we're walking through the garden, not consuming, but criticizing. We all know the people, unfortunately, who walk around the orchard and go, no, that one's good. Looking, right? That's not Christian judgment. That's not Christian judgment. And when someone says, hey, I didn't ask for you to pick my fruit, you just say, Jesus did. So he told me to check your fruit. Um, did you know accountability is love? 
Scripture is teaching us it. It's instructing. And we kind of have to learn this against the grain a little bit. Proverbs 28.3 says, Whoever rebukes a man will afterward uh, find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. I love this one because it's brutal and I'm a man. Uh, Psalm 141, verse 5, Let a righteous man strike me, punch me in the throat. Those are, that's my vernacular. It is a kindness, he says. Let him rebuke me. It is oil on my head. Let my head not refuse it. It's loving to hold one another accountable. It's not just loving. It's, it's a command. It's critical and necessary. And you, you in a sense, against your own words, you, you would have to hate me. Not to judge me and say, hey, what about this sin in my life? You would almost have to hate me to not be willing to hold me accountable if there's bad fruit in my life. I think pride gets in the way of this the same way that pride gets in the way of some of you being better bowlers. You're just you're scared to tell the attendant to put the bumpers up. You're scared. Because what's everyone else going to think? I don't use bumpers for the record because I don't need them. Just kidding. The, the hypocrisy just now in my voice, spiritually speaking, we are awful bowlers. We are children. And it is only wise for us to have bumpers. And by bumpers, in this case, I mean accountability. Does that mean that it's the believers in my life that keep me saved and headed to heaven? Absolutely not. But the Lord will use those believers in your life to act as bumpers saying, watch this, I saw this, I'm checking on this. And you will know a believer by their response. And maybe you've been a believer far from God and you've responded negatively to that. And either A, be honest with yourself, are you a believer, are you in Christ? And if you are in Christ, he's using this to stir you toward repentance. But by and large, a believer will say, you saw that, huh? Yeah. Well, what I meant, uh, I'll just forget it. I'm sorry, I repent. I'm going to go pray right now. And would you mind checking in on me in a couple of weeks? Accountability is love. This may lead to consequences. Consequences, too, are love. 1 Corinthians 5, this is harsh, but this is protecting the name of Christ and and, and honestly protecting our brother and sister in Christ. 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13, and then we'll read verse 5 is kind of the why. I don't know what it is about starting at the beginning and coming back this morning, but verse 12, 1 Corinthians 5, For what have I to do with judging outsiders, those that don't know Jesus? Paul's saying nothing. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Earlier he answers why. Verse 5. You are to deliver this man, this Christian man, unrepentant of sin. Deliver this man to Satan for the delivery or for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What in the world does that mean? Anybody ever been to rock bottom, whatever you call rock bottom for your situation, and, and, and you would say, today I'm a believer, that I, I, I repented in the midst of that? Unfortunately, some situations need to run their course, and if people don't respond properly in love to Christian judgment, or they don't respond properly in, in, in loving uh, 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 accountability, There comes a point where drawing a line, issuing consequence, is the most loving thing that we are commanded to do. 
in hopes of, not just because we're trying to protect this place and keep it pure, that no, we, with a heart breaking in half, we say, this is a line, friends. You are a brother, but you're not acting like one. These are the consequences, and I, here's my phone number, and you can always call me, but did I, did I mention, here's the line. And I want you to come back because we wore the same team jersey. We were on the same team and you've ripped off the jersey. You've refused to play and to trust Jesus and to follow him and to consider what he's done more valuable than what this world offers. And I'm sorry. There's consequences. That's the most loving thing we can do in hopes of them going outside, knitting the jersey back together, having a repent, a, a repent Jesus session with Jesus and coming back and say, I'm restored to God. Can I be restored back to this family? And the answer is always yes. With tears and smiles, the answer is always yes. Do we love like this? Last thing we see briefly, the last few verses of this powerful love scene, verse 11 through 15, back in John 13 now. For he knew, so the second intermission's over, we're back to finish the story. For Christ knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put, out, put on his outer garments again, resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? And then he answers his own question. You call me teacher, you call me Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and your teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. So the ushers are going to help me and you're all going to take off your shoes for a minute. Just kidding. It's a picture of service, right? Two things briefly. One, we see his treatment of his enemies. He loves us with impartiality right here. This is, this is the recipient of our love and the answer is, the implication is everyone, everyone, even our enemies and even those who are lesser. For our enemies, Jesus himself makes us clear as he teaches. This was important to him. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. That's in Luke 6. Matthew 5, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same thing. Do you love those who have something against you? Do you have something against someone that is, that is standing in the way between a true, intimate relationship with you and Christ? There's a direct correlation between our willingness to, to forgive others and God's repentance of our sins or God's forgiveness of our sins in our life. We don't get the opportunity to hold a grudge with another believer especially. Reconciliation is of utmost importance to God, whether you're the wronged or the wrongdoer. What did he say? He says, if, uh, 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 I think it was Jesus that said, if you're, if you're worshiping, right, leave your worship there. Like right now, you may need to physically stand up and walk out of this like during my sermon right now. Jesus, if you've got a, a, a gift to give in worship and you remember, not that you've got something against someone, right, he says, and you remember that someone has something against you, leave your gift Go and reconcile. Elsewhere in Scripture, we see as much as it depends on you, be at peace. My question is, would you pass the grocery store test? What this means is, this person, do you dodge aisles and go down an aisle where you need nothing at the store because you're afraid to have a confrontational uh, conversation or awkward conversation with someone that you're not reconciled with? 
Do we love like this? Next, do we love the lesser? He says, yes, I'm Lord. Yes, I'm teacher. And you need to go love in the same way. James 2 gives us a really clear scenario. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, um, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, you, sir, sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or maybe here, have a seat at my feet. Have you not made the distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He goes on to say, love your neighbor as yourself. The gap between any being throughout the history of the world, the gap between beings was never so wide than between Jesus and all other men in terms of value, in terms of right, in terms of glory. So if he can serve and he can love, so can we. Do you have this love that's worthy of the manner of Christ's love for you? Do you have this kind of love? Are you loving others? Do you love me like that? And I've got to look in a mirror and ask, do I love you like that? Uh, scripture is so good to us because God never expects anything of us that, that he doesn't clearly outline or explain or empower us to do or to know. Uh, love is very provable. That's a, that's a gift to us. Be loving. Love like Christ. Not going to tell you how. We watch the life of Christ and we have the gift of Scripture like 1 Corinthians 13 that says love is patient, kind, doesn't envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude, doesn't insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful. Who's convicted yet? It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing or it rejoices in the truth even when it's hard truth, right? Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, it, it hopes all things, endures all things, it never ends. We can look at that as a description and go, am I more or less you know, like that? Does that resonate with my intentions and, and not even that, my, my actions? But this morning, honestly, you may, in, in terms of speaking truth and love, you may come to the realization where, where if, if you are without Christ, you can't give something that you don't have. Love is uh, provable, but it's also proof. Uh, Galatians 5, among other things, says the fruit or the evidence of the Spirit is love. And the only step is, is not uh, this sermon outline or finding particular verses to, to try to support the way that you love. It, it's finding Christ. It's knowing Christ. Because again, we don't know, to, to, to use the, the famed words of the black eyed peas, we don't know love until we know truth. And I think they're right. And so if you try to implement this, it will be to your frustration without Christ. And we see through the story of the upper room and the willingness of Christ to wash the disciples' feet. You don't have to go far to meet him. Matter of fact, that's the story of Christianity. We're not a religion. This isn't a step uh, ladder to a deity and they happen to pick the one from the, the Bible. This is a story of God coming down to us. Jesus, in addition, becoming man paying the debt that, that we owed God. This is very much, this is very much a very difficult but very simple story of Christ's love for us. And he's not far from those who desire to know him and are willing to realize their need for a savior. 
And then for those of us who call ourselves believers, there's a couple things that I would say practically for us is, is one, rub, rub shoulders with other believers. You can't implement the Christian life unless you're with other believers. Uh, this is a picture of my life group, a, a group of people that I do life with. And I don't know if you can see the kids making silly faces in there being ridiculous, but I mean, this is an awesome group of people that, that I have learned to love so deeply, so quickly, that it's ridiculous. The only thing you can explain is, is the power of, of unity of the Spirit, right? We read about this in the Bible. And it's so true in that, that messed up, uh, dysfunctional, imperfect, uh, did I say messy? Like, wherever we go, we destroy stuff, because look at the kids and and, you know, one person forgets the guacamole, and I, hey, I, I said I was going to bring cornbread, and so did they, and there's like two desserts. It's like I wasted my, you know, it's messy. It's, you know, and, and the food is the least of it, right? It's like we're, we're, a, we're a mess. Uh, but, but on the other hand, not really. Like it's, it's, it's so cool to sit around for a solid five minutes maybe while the kids are eerily quiet upstairs, and we circle up as adults, and, and we encourage one another. How can we pray? Cool, okay, it's good to know that's going on. I'm going to text you about the job interview the next day. I'm going, to, I'm going to help meet that need as best I can. And this is a group of people we rub shoulders with. And that's why we do life groups. Uh, on some level, to do all that love requires us to do, it cannot happen in a corporate setting. So there's another very biblical uh, layer to Christian community that we call life group. So I would say rub shoulders. Second, I would say sink roots. Our love for Christ is only as deep as our, our love for one another is only as deep as our love for Christ. So Christian, recall the gospel. Remember all you were forgiven of, right? Jesus says she loves so much because she was forgiven so much. We are at risk of forgetting all we were forgiven of. And therefore our love wanes. Let's remember the gospel and how much we were forgiven. Sink roots into Christ. That will in direct proportion relate to our love to one another. In your insert, there's 10 practical things. We try to be just really practical with this series. Biblical principles kind of run throughout all those. And on the flip side, it's a challenge to spend some time in prayer and ask how these three ways that we see in this scene, that Christ loved us, how you might love each other better in those same ways. And just to recap one more time, I think this story tells us, teaches us to love one another in a manner worthy of Christ's love for us. Let's pray.